A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapter 64, 65, 66, 67, 68 of The Da Vinci Code. Oh, God, I'm going to be exhausted by the end of this. Before we get into this episode, just a quick plug for the Patreon. We've just finished The Maze Runner. We've shuck and finished it. I'm done with those shanks, except I am watching the movie this week. So that episode will be out next week. There'll be a little 365 days, the next 365 days bonus app, and then heading into the 50 Shades Freed coverage. So if you want to sign up to the Patreon, you'll get the 50 Shades Freed coverage from next week. And you can also access the older 50 Shades Darker coverage if you want to freshen up on the exploits of Anastasia Steele and Christian Grey Esquire. So that's $3 a month, new episodes every week. And you just go to patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks to get access. Okay, this episode. All right, where we left off, T-Bing and Langdon just did a tag team on Sophie trying to explain how all of the Disney movies have secret little winks and nods to Mary Magdalene. Uh, I mean, I mean. And then Sophie and Robert try and loop in T-Bing being like, oh, by the way, there's this box, which is a keystone, blah, 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 blah. But meanwhile, roads are converging because we've got Silas just listening in from the window and also Lieutenant Collot. He's out near the gate because Fash was like, well, don't arrest him. I need to be there immediately. Like, that's not going to go wrong. You know what? When you can arrest the fucker, arrest the fucker. That's what I've always said. But anyway, let's get into it. So chapter 64 starts with T-Bing looking down at the keystone box and he's looking at the rose that's engraved onto it or whatever. It's, they call it an inlaid rose. So it's like not part of the box, but it's a little bit in the box. I don't really know. So he's looking at it and he's like, wow. Tonight has become the strangest and most magical night of my life. Even though he sort of probably knew it was heading in that direction when he ordered the murder of those four people. But yep, so he's like giving us a little internal monologue about how excited he is. But he hasn't even opened the box yet. The thing is, he's just looking at the box with a little drawing etch-a-sketch of a rose on top of it. I'm sorry, but plenty of boxes could have roses on them. Like, I don't really get why he's like, well, this is undisputably the cleft of oot. Like, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's just a box. And Sophie's like, um, you got to lift the lid. Like, uh, wake up to yourself, T-Bing. You haven't even opened the box yet. What are you doing? And T-Bing's thinking, don't rush me. Having spent over a decade searching for the keystone, he wanted to savor every millisecond of the moment. And so he's like feeling the box up. He's running his hands all over the box. And he's like, oh my God, it's a rose. And then he, in narration, 
like in italics says, the rose is Magdalene is the Holy Grail. What? Is that a full sentence? The rose is Magdalene is the Holy Grail. No commas or anything, but okay. And he says, the rose is the compass that guides the way. And he's like getting all giddy. And I'm like, yeah, it's just a fucking rose on a box. It could have been any, a million different boxes have a rose on them. Like what? And he's like, oh my God. And then he also feels like a bit of a dropkick because he's like, oh, for years I've been going around to all these churches and cathedrals all over France, spending thousands of dollars trying to find this cleft de voûte. But apparently it's this box. <laughs> and then as his eyes finally gazed upon the contents, he knew in an instant it could only be the keystone. So he's looking at the little Da Vinci cryptogram thing. I still am unclear on how long this myth of the keystone has been around, but apparently Sonia is the one that made this crypto box thing. So is that a recent myth about the keystone? Oh, none of it makes sense. So he was like, oh my God, it's a cryptogram. Like the device seemed surprisingly familiar to him, the story says, which is interesting to note because remember Robert had never seen the thing before in his life. Famed scholar, Robert Langdon, Harvard's best and brightest, had never seen a cryptogram before and Sophie had to explain what it was, but T-Bing knows it instantly. And she says, it's designed from Da Vinci's diaries. My grandfather made them as a hobby. And he's like, of course. He's like, of course, I've seen the sketches and the blueprints. He's seen them. Presumably he's studying the same books that Langdon's studying. Langdon just wrote a whole book that he's trying to sell. His poor editor back in New York is trying to scrap that together into something that people would want to read. But he's never looked at Da Vinci's blueprints and sketches before. Hmm, pull the other one. So T-Bing's having like a full on out of body experience, just like oh, his whole life is culminating before this moment. And then he's saying in French, venu Trevor, blah, 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 which is translated to you do not find the grail, the grail finds you. Who said that? Because <laughs> apparently no one's ever found the fucking grail. So who came up with that saying? <laughs> okay, so then they explain about the cryptex and the vinegar and all that stuff. And Langdon, he's like, I'm going to carry the rosewood box across the room and get a better look at it. And it says something T-Bing had just said was now running through Langdon's mind. The key to the grail is hidden beneath the sign of the rose. Okay, but T-Bing didn't say anything. (laughs) T-Bing's monologue was internal. He didn't vocalize any of this. All right, let's look back at what he actually said out loud. He whispered the rose and (laughs) and that's it. That's it. All that other crap that I've just described was all his internal monologue. So I don't know what Robert heard, but apparently something T-Bing had just said was now running through his mind. Uh, but, uh, but maybe we're not privy to it, but uh, what, a, what a confusing page to land on here. Like far out, Dan, you're really trying to make me second guess things. Anyway, so Langdon's thinking, huh, beneath the rose, sub Rosa, secret. Maybe I should lift out the little rose out of the box is basically what he's getting at, but it takes a much longer time for us to reach that point. And meanwhile, a bump in the hallway behind him made Langdon turn, but he couldn't see anything. And he's like, oh, it must be the manservant. Remember, it's Remy the manservant. We don't call him Remy. It's just the manservant. And that's clearly Silas just breaking in, bumping shit. He's the worst super secret spy monk ever. (laughs) Although apparently he's not that bad because... He hid pretty quick once Langdon turned around, apparently. So Langdon finds a paperclip and it says, borrowing the clip, he returned to the box, opened it and studied the hole again, like the hole with the rose in it. I don't really understand it. But then it says he unbends the paperclip 
and inserts one end into the hole and gives it a little push. And so then that little rose clicks out like a puzzle piece and falls on the table. So the rose had popped out of the lid. But let's just circle back to how he borrowed the paperclip, but then he unbent it. So, I mean, you just ruined the paperclip. You can't say you're borrowing it if you're then ruining it. And uh, like, are you intending to give it back ruined? Just say he found a paperclip and he took a paperclip and he used a paperclip after he broke a paperclip. You don't have to say borrowing the paperclip. T-Bing's rich. He lives in the castle district of France. Like, I think he's okay if you steal a paperclip. Borrowing the paperclip. Does language mean nothing anymore? Anyway, so on the other side of the rows were four lines of text in a language that he'd never seen before. Again, Harvard's best and brightest. He's never seen a language like that before. So he's like, ooh. But then he gets knocked out by Silas. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so yeah, as he fell, he thought for a moment he saw a pale ghost hovering over him, clutching a gun. I mean, are people with albinism, are they that rare that again, Harvard scholar Robert Langdon would look at one and assume it's a ghost. You know what? It was fair enough in that rural, well, it wasn't really fair enough, but it was fair enough when Silas was telling us back in his hometown of uneducated people, apparently, they were all shouting out, you're a ghost, you're a ghost. But, but Robert Langdon should know better. Yeah, he was taken by surprise, but do you really think it's a ghost with a gun? Like, do ghosts generally hold objects? I don't know. I'm sure if I saw him, I'd be like, Oh yeah, that's an albino. Like, I, it's just a pale person. And ne- okay, never mind. So then we go to chapter 65 and it says, Sophie, despite working in law enforcement, had never found herself at gunpoint until tonight. Indicating that she's being held at gunpoint right now, but also she was held at gunpoint like five hours earlier in the Louvre. So I don't know why she's making a big deal of being held at gunpoint at this point in time. Oh, and then she was held at gunpoint in the armored truck when Vernet was trying to take the, the box off of them. And it seems to be recurring quite a bit, but yep, yeah, she's being held at gunpoint and she says, oh my God, and the gun was being clutched in the pale hand of an enormous albino with long white hair. He looked at her with red eyes that radiated a frightening disembodied quality. Okay, he's it's just pale. There's just something with the pigmentation in his skin, like calm down. And like, I know he's holding you at gunpoint, but it's not polite to stare. It's not polite. And then she says he's dressed in a a robe with a rope tie. So he looks like some sort of medieval monk. And then she's like, wow, okay. She had a sudden newfound respect for T-Bing's suspicions that the church was behind this. Oh yeah, because the church would really send someone out in monk robes to conduct this big secret mission. Like, no, if the church were going to organize something, wouldn't they send like someone in like, a discreet costume. Like, I don't think they'd be sending monks. Like, Teabing will. Yeah, sure. Teabing, as the teacher, he'll send whatever crackpot he can find. But if the church is really coordinating it, do you think they'd really send out one guy in a monk robe? No. No, I don't believe they would. So Langdon's lying on the floor, just floundering. Teabing's holding the keystone. And Silas is like, all right, give it over. And Teabing's like, you won't be able to open it, dude. And so then... Silas, he says, my teacher is very wise. And T-Bing's like, ha ha, wink. And so then Sophie, she's like, where's the manservant? Where is T-Bing's manservant? He has a name, Soph. He's got a name. And so T-Bing's like, who is your teacher? Perhaps we can make a financial arrangement. Wink. He's just loving the theater of it. Like we got a window into it last chapter, but he's just having real, he's having a lot of fun tonight. When you, I, I mean, I know he's the villain, 
But when you think about it, he's just this sad old rich white guy. <laughs> and he just needs a little bit of fun. So he's putting people's lives at risk and killing people and creating a global incident just to have that spark back. And can, you know what? That's kind of camp. And can you blame him? There's something admirable about going after your hobbies. And he's doing that in a villainous way, yes. But you got to admire someone with hobbies. And so Tabing, I don't know if he's trying to distract him or what, but he's like, hey, you're bleeding and also you're limping. And Silas is like, yeah, so are you, fucker. Like, okay, there's so much animosity between the two of them when really they're on each other's sides. I mean, because Silas doesn't know who the teacher is, just as a reminder. So he's also going to be blindsided when he finds out. So Silas says, hand me the keystone. And Tabing, he's like, what? you know of the keystone? It's like, no, he came here to rob your DVD collection. He came here to rob your Blu-rays. No, mate, he's there for the keystone. So he knows about the keystone. How would he not know about it? Why is this news to you that he knows about the keystone? Because he's robbing you for it. And also it says, you know of the keystone? Teabing said, sounding surprised. Why are you surprised? You hired the guy. You read his resume and said he's the best man for the job. So he's just a really good actor, I guess. Because the, the sentence doesn't make sense. That line only makes sense if you know that he's lying. So he goes, hey, yeah, I do know the keystone. So give it to me. Hey, Silas, just go and grab it. As you've said yourself, he's a cripple. Just knock him over, grab the keystone and be off with it. I mean, yes, yeah, Sophie's, Sophie's standing there, but she's not going to stop you. Robert's on the ground. You're the one with the gun. You've got the leverage. Grab the fucking thing. But there's a standoff for no reason. But he's saying, come on, stand up and slowly come over here. And T-Bing's like, well, I will be slow because I'm in braces. And he's like, okay, well, that's good. No sudden movements. Who would have thought Dan Brown could make a standoff run at a glacial pace? So they're just edging closer and closer. How far apart are they? But it's just going forever. This way, this way. And so then T-Bing's like, oh, by the way, you won't succeed as he's inching towards him. He says, only the worthy can unlock this stone. And he's like, oh no, oh no, I'm wavering. He's like, oh no, I'm out of balance. This thing, it's too heavy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tip over and drop it. Uh-oh. Uh oh, and he's swaying around. It's all a bit. So Silas is like, ah, I don't want it to drop. So he like runs forward to try and get the thing finally. And that's when Tabing whacks him with his braces, with his crutch. And he aims for the bit where that little chastity belt is on Silas. I don't know what it is. Uh, okay, I'll tell you. It's, I just, I never refer to it as the word that it is because I don't know how to say it. And I know I say a lot of shit wrong, but it's C I L I C E. Silice? Like, I don't know. I think I went to a school with a girl called Celise. It seems weird to call that a Celise. So, a Celice? I don't know. So, I'm just going to call it his chastity belt that's around his thigh as his, like, penance. You know that thing. Anyway, so, he swings the crutches at his chastity belt. And so, he's like, ow, ow, that hurts. So, now Silas is on the ground. And Sophie, she activated. So, now she's kicking him in the face. So, good on you, Soph. Meanwhile, while he fell, I guess a bullet got shot out of the gun. And so then Colette, he's at the driveway and he's like, oh my God, was that a gun? He's like, rot row. And he doesn't know what to do. And it says with Fash on the way, Colette had already relinquished any hopes of claiming personal credit for finding Langdon tonight. Um, why would you get any personal credit? Fash is the one that's been blasting his face through Interpol. Shouldn't Remy the manservant get credit if he's the one that called it in, even though I don't know if he did. Uh, but I guess the bank did. I don't know. Someone put a tip into the cops. It's really seemed like a group effort. But w- so why would Colette 
who let the armoured truck leave the bank dock, who left no one behind at the Louvre with the victim, why would he get any credit? So he's thinking, yeah, I know I've got, to, I've got to let Fash make the arrest and I can't get the credit, but a gun went off, so I've got to go investigate. So he's like, all right, guys, pull down the gate. We got to go. So then we cut to back inside. Robert's coming to. T-Bing's like, hey, manservant, where the hell have you been? And then it says the manservant hurried in and he goes, I, uh, sorry, I was busy. I don't, I don't know doing what, but I was busy. Well, who's this, who's this pale guy? He goes, oh, maybe I'll call the police. So he didn't call the police yet. And T-Bing's like, don't call the fucking police. What do you, he's like, duh, we can't call the police. I'm not sure why not. I mean, oh yeah, they're fugitives. That's right. (laughs) Robert and Sophie are fugitives. Forgot about that. So he says, make yourself useful. Okay. Don't talk to staff like that. I know it's a tense situation, T-Bing, but you don't talk to your staff like that. He says, make yourself useful and get us something with which to restrain this monster. Again, he's not a monster. I mean, yes, he's killed people, but he's not a monster. And Sophie's like, yeah, and get some ice. No, please. I mean, who's she? Is she his boss? Like, it's bad enough T-Bing's talking shit to Remy the manservant, but does Sophie have to chime in too? She says, and some ice. Excuse me, Miss Thing, go get yourself some ice. I'm sure your drink will be fine. You don't need a drink that's that cold. Oh no, it's for his head. So she wants ice for Langdon's (laughs) head wound. Fair enough. So Langdon, he's still putting it all together. He's like, oh, oh, oh." he must've really got knocked out quite hard. And then he's like, am I hallucinating? Because he's staring at the massive body of an albino monk. He's like, oh, surely I'm hallucinating because I've never seen anything like that before. And he's like, Sophie, who the hell's that? And then it says T-Bing hobbled over, which again, I think is ableist, but okay. T-Bing hobbled over and he says, you were rescued by a knight brandishing an Excalibur made by Acme Orthopedic. Again, Dan Brown, leave the jokes for someone else. I'm sorry, you're not funny. He keeps trying to crack jokes, but it's not landing. So Langdon's trying to piece it all together and T-Bing's like, oh, he was wearing a chastity belt. So I just knocked his chastity belt, like obviously. And Langdon, he's like, huh, how did you know he was wearing a chastity belt on his thigh? Which is a great point. He's edging so close to picking up on the red flags, but, but T-Bing says, Christianity is my field of study, Robert. And there are certain sects who wear their hearts on their sleeves. He's like, it's obvious because I study this. And Robert's like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And we know who Silas is. Like, have we not just read 60 odd chapters of Silas. Like he's been a constant presence throughout this bloody book. And so even though we know that, and we know about him wearing a chastity belt because we've, we've read about him whipping himself. Langdon has to be like, ah, yes, Opus Dei. And then he gives us the spiel on Opus Dei. He says, recent media coverage, recent media, recent media coverage of several prominent Boston businessmen, blah, blah, fucking blah. We already know this, Robert. God, if he goes like three hours without lecturing someone, he dies. He, he dies apparently, because that's why he's just hell bent on lecturing people who do not need to be lectured. Oh. And I'm not just talking one line. It's like a full two paragraphs, like big chunks. Okay, so then he's like, why would Opus Day be trying to find the grail? He's like, that's crazy. And then Sophie's like, oh, hey, what's this little rose thing? What's, what's this random little rose thing that's, you know, just popped up out of nowhere. And Robert's like, oh yeah, it was in the box or on the box. 
He says, I think the text that it was hiding might tell us how to open the keystone. But before he can say anything else, a sea of blue police lights and sirens erupted. And Teabing says, my friends, it seems we have a decision to make. All right, and that's the end of that chapter. All right, great. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, chapter 66. Colette and his agents, they're busting through the doors of the estate. So they do a sweep of the bottom floor and they don't find anything. They see a little hole in the ground where a bullet got shot, um, but they don't see anything. So they're like, all right, let's go upstairs because they start to hear voices. So they rush upstairs, they move room by room through the huge home, although you'd think you just head towards where you hear the voice, but no, they go room by room and the sounds seem to be coming from the last bedroom on an exceptionally long hallway. So they're like, oh, oh, here we go. So then they start hearing an odd rumbling sound like an engine and they still think it's the upstairs bedroom. So they're coming into the upstairs bedroom, they're hearing this rumbling engine noise and they're like, where are they? Where are they? They're looking around and then he goes, oh no, it's an empty guest bedroom. The rumbling sounds of an automobile, an automobile, just say car. (sighs) The rumbling sounds of an automobile engine poured from a black electronic panel on the wall beside the bed. And he's like, oh, it's some sort of intercom system. Oh no, they're somewhere else. Oh, they're not driving out of the upstairs bedroom. They must be somewhere else. So then he looks at the intercom system. And he sees a bunch of panels. He's like, study, kitchen, laundry, cellar. And he's like, well, where would I hear a car? And I'm like, you douche nozzle. 
I can assure you that the sound of the vehicle, of the automobile, is not coming from the kitchen or the laundry. I can assure you of that. And then he's looking and he's like, master bedroom. You, aren't you in the master bedroom? He's like, master bedroom, sunroom, library. Oh, where's the car noise coming from? Where could they be? And then he's like, oh, it's the barn. I bet they're in the barn. No fucking shit. So then they run down to the barn. They've been duped. <laughs> Completely duped. Why were they not checking the barn beforehand? <sighs> Oh, they run down to the barn and that's where they hear the fading sounds of an automobile engine. They run in and they see an intercom panel and that's where one of its buttons was pressed down and it's transmitting to the guest bedroom number two. And that's when he's like, oh my God, they got me. I thought he figured that out earlier, but no, Colette wheeled, anger brimming. And he says, oh, they lured us upstairs with the intercom exclamation mark foiled again. I can't believe he didn't twig that until getting to the barn, but man, foiled by an intercom and also by Vernet with his wonderful acting chops and his, his solid gold Rolex. Like, yeah, Colette, you're not that good at being a cop. I'm sorry, but maybe quit your day job and get some other job because you suck. So then he sees all of these stalls filled with like antique cars and like really fancy cars. And one of the stalls is empty and he's like, oh, where do we go? And then he's trying to determine like what type of vehicle they took to get out of there. Like, does it really matter? Like, who cares? Just chase after them. It doesn't matter if he's in the Ferrari or the Rolls. But he says, you know what? Spread out into the forest area. They won't get far. These fancy sport cars can't handle terrain. Uh, oh, okay. Now, now Dan Brown's coming for fancy sport cars. I hope the publication of this novel didn't tank the stock of Ferrari. Once people found out that fancy cars can't handle terrain, oh gosh, the luxury sports car business would have plummeted. And so then someone finds a pegboard on which hung several sets of keys and they're all labeled with the car next to them, which feels like Teabing's trying to be robbed, like just handing people the keys. And he sees Rolls-Royce, Aston Martin, Porsche. Oh, but the last peg was empty. And he goes, oh no, we're in trouble. I guess because it wasn't a sports car. I mean, that's on you for assuming that all he owns are sports cars. But, oh, that's the end of that chapter. Okay. Chapter 67. Oh, they're in a Range Rover. There's that cliffhanger resolved. Did that need to be a cliffhanger? Why did Dan Brown think, like, oh, we're being left in suspense? Oh, we don't know what type of vehicle, what type of automobile they're in. <gasps> oh, it's a Range Rover. Okay, great. Great. Means nothing to me because I don't know cars. But, uh, uh, sure. And it says Langdon was pleased he was not driving. Yeah, me too. You're not a good driver. You broke an armored car. You know how strong an armored car is? The Swiss Depository Bank of Paris had really strong cars and you broke them. So yeah, I'm glad you're not driving too. Guess who's driving? The manservant. You know, you can just say staff member. You can say butler slash concierge. I mean, anything, but do you have to say manservant? So he's driving, he's heading for the woods. And Sophie says, how's your head, Robert? And he says, I haven't had any complaints. Uh, No, he doesn't actually say that. He says, yeah, better, thanks. He misses that joke. Um, And he's like, well, it's killing me actually. Oh, and they've got Silas all tied up in the back seat. I mean, did they have to take him? How does that help that, that they've got him? I would have let the cops maybe arrest the guy that's been killing everyone and who's gotten the jump on ya and knocked Robert over the head. Like, yeah, arrest him. 
I bet that was T-Bing's idea, you know, because he's behind it all. He was probably like, guys, we have to take him. And they were probably like, wait, why? And he was like, ah, for reasons. I studied Christianity, so I have reasons. And they were like, okay, well, if you say so, we trust you implicitly. We, we just met you. Uh, your motivations are sketchy, but we trust you without any doubt. And he was like, great. Remy, the manservant, load him up. And so they're all in the car and T-Bing, he says, so glad you popped in this evening, Robert. Grinning as if he were having fun for the first time in years. Yeah, he's having a hoot of a time. So he's driving into the woods. <sighs> Remy puts on fog lights and that's like a big thing. Langdon lectures us about the benefits of fog lights for a bit. Oh, I wish I was kidding. And then Sophie, she's like, where are we going? <laughs> Great question. And T-Bing's like, we're just cutting through the woods until we hit the highway. And she's like, okay, good enough for me. And then Langdon, he's looking at the box and he's like, hmm, I know it was a language I couldn't recognize before I got hit in the head, but maybe I'll just look again to see if I can translate that inscription of that language that I do not speak. And T-Bing, he's looking at him and he's like, Robert, it's dark. We've only got the fog lights on famously. If you couldn't read it with the lights on, I doubt you're going to be able to read it now. So just chill out for a second. Meanwhile, the monk, Silas, he starts moaning and groaning in the back seat and T-Bing turns around to him and he's like, hey, you, you trespassed in my home and planted a nasty welt on the skull of a dear friend. It would be well within my rights to shoot you right now and leave you to rot in the woods. And that shuts Silas up. Silas is like, well, you got me there (laughs) because T-Bing's got the gun. Sophie, why are you letting the sketchy guy hold the gun? They've lost all instincts. And also he didn't technically trespass on your home because you did sort of invite him in a roundabout way, but we'll just park that for now. And Langdon says, are you sure we should have brought him? So it was T-Bing's idea. And T-Bing's like, yeah, of course. He says, you're wanted for murder, Robert. This scoundrel is your ticket to freedom. Okay, well then get him arrested then. I, I don't and T-Bing says, the police apparently want you badly enough to have you tailed to my home. And that's when Sophie's like, well, you know what? It might be one of my oopsies, actually. The armored car probably had a transmitter in it. <laughs> Whoops. And T-Bing's like, yeah, well, the, I mean, the police were obviously going to find you. But how this chap, how did this chap track you to my home? He says, I can't imagine how this man could have tailed you to my home unless he had a contact either within the judicial police or within the Zurich depository. Wink. (laughs) You, you tipped him off, T-Bing. See, he's got the best poker face. If I was lying, I'd be trying to not bring it up. But he's just like boldly bringing it up. And then T-Bing says, this monk is not working alone, Robert. And until you learn who is behind all of this, you are both in danger, wink. He says, this monster behind me holds that information and whoever is pulling his strings has got to be quite nervous right now, wink. He's not nervous at all. He is playing them like a fiddle. And so then Tabing points to the car phone in the dash. <laughs> a car phone. God, this really is a time capsule of a book. And so then Tabing takes it and he starts calling his like private plane up. Of course he has a private plane. He's too rich. And apparently he doesn't trust French doctors. So he catches a plane to England every time he feels sick and he's getting treatment done. So he's going all the time. He says, French doctors make me nervous. So every fortnight I fly north to take my treatments in England. I'm sorry, he's flying around more than Taylor Swift. 
Think of the ecological impact this man is having on our world because he's just jaunting up to go to the chemist on a private plane. I can assure you French doctors are just the same as English doctors. Is he, uh, am I taking crazy pills here? I mean, yeah, you don't like to pay tax to the French and yet you're paying for private flights every fortnight. And he says he pays for certain privileges at both ends so he doesn't have to go through customs and shit. So he's paying bribes to pop up to Priceline or the chemist warehouse just to get some strepsils and some bloody Advil. And he's worried about paying his taxes. You know what? Pay your fucking taxes. And this poor pilot that he's got on speed dial, it's like 4am or something. Like, what is he doing? He can't just treat his staff like this. And he goes, hey, Richard, did I wake you up? And he goes, well, of course I did. It's like 4am. Whoopsie. Anyway, could you have the plane ready in about 20 minutes? Thanks. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. He's going to have to get up, put on clothes, get to the airfield. How do you expect a man to do that in 20 minutes? And then he tells Robert and Sophie being like, oh yeah, I'm taking you guys to London, by the way. You can't possibly stay in France, not with the French police after you. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an international incident at this point. I don't think London will protect him. Or is that a rule I missed? Commit murder in France, but once you get to London, you'll be fine. Is that a rule of thumb? He says, by the way, I'm more influential in the civilized world than here in France. You know what? France is civilized. Yeah, the people may be rude, but you can't say they're not civilized. He's acting like they're the biggest little ramshack town. Uh, It's France. You're trying to tell me that Great Britain is more civilized than France? Like, I think, I think they're the same. He says, yeah, I'm more influential in Great Britain. Like, how do you, how do you think you'll help people being charged for murder? Like, okay, you might know a few doctors and a few chemists. Yes, you are knighted. You are a knight. But can you really get, like, diplomatic immunity for your friend Robert after he kills the curator of the Louvre? Like, do you have that much sway? And then he says, furthermore, the Grail is believed to be in Great Britain. Hold up, wait a second. What? (laughs) Hold up. All this time, they've been talking about France. It went to France. It was in France. Then it went to Great Britain. It's very confusing. So, okay, I think I've got this right. So the keystones in France, but the grails in Great Britain. So he left Great Britain and spent years in France, the place he hates, going from churches up and down the country to find the keystone, even though he knows that the grails in Great Britain. Could you ever maybe like try and find the Holy Grail without the keystone? I don't know, but apparently it's just gospel that it's in Great Britain. And spoiler alert, it's not in Great Britain. But even Robert's like, ah, yes, of course. I mean, obviously the Grail's in Great Britain. Like, that's where everybody says it is. That's where the Arthurian legend comes from. You know what? Things move around. Like, (sighs) and then Sophie says, are you sure you want to come with us? Like, you're going to be running foul of the French police. And Tabing's like, ugh. He's like, French people, ugh. I'm never coming back here. Yuck. He goes, I'm finished with France. I moved here to find the Keystone. Now that I've found it, it walked right up to you. You didn't really do much. He says, I shan't care if I ever again see Chateau Villette. And Sophie's like, wow, okay. But what are we going to do about getting through security? And that's when he's like, I'm not going through security, Doris. Like, I'm good. So he's just planning to, to shack up in England for the rest of his life. And Remy's like, sorry, could we dial back to to us going to France type of a thing. And he says, 
Yeah, Remy, don't worry. Like, you can come with me. I'll hire you. Just because I'm returning to the Queen's realm does not mean I intend to subject my palate to bangers and mash for the rest of my days. He says, yeah, I've got us a little chateau in Devonshire. Come live with me. Are they fucking? I mean, they're calling him manservant, but maybe they should be calling him boyfriend because they seem quite close. It's one thing to be someone's butler in a chateau in Versailles, but a completely different thing to be shacking up with someone in Devonshire. And so while T-Bing's just so cheery about returning to England, Langdon's getting caught up in his infectious enthusiasm. He's like, oh man, this is fun. He's like, yeah, this is good. Sonia's dead. The three center show are dead. But he's like, this is a hoot. And then I guess he's in the front seat and he's looking at the side mirror. And in the side mirror, which has been tipped inward, apparently, he can see Sophie's reflection sitting in the back seat. And so he just like watches her for a long while, a long while, and felt an unexpected upwelling of contentment. Despite his troubles tonight, Langdon was thankful to have landed in such good company. Her granddad's dead. Yeah, I'm glad you made a friend, but like, let's put things into perspective here. And then after several minutes of staring at her, several minutes, she senses him staring at her or something. So then she reaches to him and she's like, oh, you were right. He was just staring at her for several minutes. That's so fucking creepy. And he's like, yeah, I'm all right. And so then she sits back and he's still staring at her through the mirror because it says Langdon saw a quiet smile cross her lips. A quiet smile. Is that opposed to smiles that shout and play loud music and play the maracas. Like what's a quiet smile? I didn't know there was a volume attached to smiling. And then he realized that he's grinning too. Oh, they're both so happy. Happy little chappies on a murder mission. Uh, And now they're going international. International criminals fleeing borders and they're bloody chuffed. They are thrilled. Just super, super pumped for it. Meanwhile, Silas can barely breathe. He's in pain. Every bump in the road means that his sore shoulder's getting hurt. At least they took off his chastity belt, thank God. But they've got tape over his mouth. And then apparently because of the dusty cargo area that he's in or whatever, it's starting to clog up his nostrils. So now he can't breathe. And so he starts coughing. No one does anything. But then Remy, the manservant, he says, I think he's choking. And they're like, ugh, ugh, fine. So they take the tape off of his mouth and T-Bing's like, whom do you work for? (laughs) Whom do you work for? You can park the grammar for a second. Like, look at your surroundings. See where you are right now. You don't need to say whom or shan't. Drop it. And he's like, I work for God. And everyone's like rolling their eyes in the car. They're like, oh, this guy. And Silas is having a little internal freak out because he's like, oh no, I've let them down. My teacher, the bishop. My captors have the keystone. It's all going so bad. They're going to find the grail before we do. Oh no, I need a miracle. And just as he says, I need a miracle, Dan Brown tells us with a bit of like actual foreshadowing, he says, Silas had no way of knowing that hours from now he would get one. And then we move on. So I I guess that's just a little tease, a little deep tease for us. And then Sophie's watching Robert and she says, hey, Robert, a funny look just crossed your face. And Langdon's like, huh, what? And he's like, yeah, something's just occurred to me, but he doesn't say it out loud. He goes, could it really be that simple an explanation? And then he's like, Sophie, I need your phone. And she's like, what now? I mean, just use the car phone. And he's like, I think I found something out. And he's not going to tell her, obviously, or us. He wants to drag it out for another cliffhanger. And she's like, what is it? 
And he says, I'll tell you in a minute, but give me your phone. And she goes, oh, I doubt Fash is tracing it, but keep it under a minute just in case. Why would you doubt that Fash is tracing your phone? Your phone that's already been a plot point in Robert's escape. Why would he not be tracing that? Like, of course he's tracing it. Your your photos are on the news. And if you're that worried, make him use the car phone that's already been established is in the car because it's already made a call. But now we're using Sophie's mobile. Why is it on? Turn that shit off and throw it into the sane. I mean, what are you doing? Have you never fled from the cops before? You're the DCPJ, you should know better. And so then he's like, how do I dial the states? And she goes, you need to reverse the charges. My service doesn't cover transatlantic. Like this is the real dialogue. I, I, get, I, I know you think I'm joking, but that's ripped from the pages. You need to reverse the charges. My service doesn't cover transatlantic. <laughs> or is that a joke? Is he being funny? Like, oh, I don't know. Anyway, so Langdon dials zero, knowing that the next 60 seconds might answer a question that had been puzzling him all night. And I'm like, oh my God, what could it be? End of chapter. Ah, oh my God, we have to read the next page. Oh my God, we've got to find out what he's going to do. Who's he going to call? He just calls his editor. Like, sorry to burst your bubble. We go to chapter 68 and he just calls his editor Jonas. And Jonas is like, oh, it's a bit fucking late. Who's calling me? And then he gets the operator say, oh, will you accept charges for a collect call from Robert Langdon? And he's like, this fucking asshole is charging me to take a call. He's like, no, he's like, I hate this Robert guy. And Langdon's like, Jonas, I have to know. I really need to know that manuscript I gave you. Have you sent it out? Did you send out any copies for blurbs without telling me? And he's like, yeah, obviously. Like I'm your publisher. I'm your editor. Like, da-doy. All this shit you're going on about Mary Magdalene, it's going to raise some eyebrows. So we needed some positive critiques in there from your contemporaries, from serious historians and art luminaries. So like, yeah, obviously I sent out a copy of your book around against your will, without your knowledge, which reads a bit false to me because like, I don't know, you'd think they'd seek the author's input on that. Does the author not get a say in who's writing a blurb for him? Like, I don't know. And he goes, Jonas, tell me, did you send one to the curator of the Louvre? He says, no, he says of the Paris Louvre. What other Louvre is there? Is there a Louvre in Texas? Like, is is there a Louvre in Mozambique that I don't know about? Oh, did you send one to the Paris Louvre? No, Robert. I just sent one to the one in Tasmania. The Paris Louvre. Are you shitting me? Oh, this book. And he goes, uh, yeah, obviously your manuscript referenced the Louvre collection several times and he was in your bibliography and we needed some serious clout for foreign sales. So yeah, like I I sent one to Sonia. It's a no brainer. And he goes, when did you send it? When did you do it? Like, who cares, Robert? Is this really the mystery that you need to solve of this whole book of mysteries? You've got a cryptex in your lap and you're caring about whether or not Sonia got sent a copy of your book. And then he's like, yeah, about a month ago. I mean, you said you'd be in Paris soon. So I figured you guys could catch up. And he goes, I am in Paris. And he's like, what? You called me collect from Paris? What the hell? I guess because it costs more. But also, shouldn't you have like a Google alert out for your client? You should know where your client is. And it feels like this conversation has been going on for longer than a minute, but Robert's trying to wrap it up. So Robert says, did you ever hear back from Sonia? Did he like the manuscript? And he goes, I don't know. I haven't heard back. And Robert says, don't hold your breath. Doesn't tell him that the man they're talking about has been murdered. He just says, don't hold your breath. (laughs) 
Like, fill a bitch in, Robert. <laughs> Why do you always have to leave people in suspense? Don't hold your breath. I gotta run. Bye. And he hangs up on him. And T-Bing was eavesdropping on the conversation, I guess. And he goes, Robert, Robert, you old cad. Robert, are you saying you wrote a manuscript that delves into a secret society and your editor sent a copy to that secret society? (laughs) And he says, it's a cruel coincidence, my friend. I mean, is it? (laughs) I don't even know if it's a coincidence for one, but a cruel coincidence? And then there's like this discussion between the two of them about like, whether or not he took a favorable stance on the Priory of Sion in the book. And if Sonia did read it, like, would he be offended by what Robert wrote? Would he have been amused? It's like, who gives a shit? He's dead. And also you're missing the point of of this. And like Langdon's even wincing, being like, oh my God. And there's all those times that I mentioned the keystone, like, oh, I'm such an idiot. He probably thought I was so dumb. (laughs) Oh my God. And then Sophie's like, yeah, but also the point of this is that your book is in his office and you said you'd never met him before and he's got an advanced copy of your manuscript. So it probably does look like you're lying to Fash. And Robert's like, yeah, I, I guess maybe. And she's like, yeah, no, you told him you never corresponded with my grandfather and he's got your manuscript in his office. Like, obviously you look like a fucking liar. And then Robert's like, oh my God, I bet you're right. He's like, oh my God. Maybe that's why they think I killed him. And I'm like, yeah, that and the PS find Robert Langdon written on the floor in Invisible Ink. Like, yeah, that might have something to do with it, Robert. Oh, he sends my blood pressure through the roof. Okay, so that's, that was the mystery. That big cliffhanger. He had that big realization. It was just simply to do with whether or not his editor sent the manuscript to Sonia. It resolves the mystery of what Sonia knew about Robert Langdon. Oh, glad we got that out of the way. Okay, so they get to the air hangar. They see the plane and T-Bing's like, beats the bloody channel. Blah, 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 blah. And then the poor pilot, he's like, oh, almost ready, sir. Sorry. Sorry for the delay, but you took me by surprise. And I'm like, yeah, you got a 20 minute heads up in the middle of the night. Like, stop apologizing. And then he's like, oh, but like, I can only take you and the manservant. I'm not cleared to take other people. Your guests, they're going to have to stay. And then T-Bing has the gall to whip out the gun, points it at him, and he says, 2,000 pounds and this loaded gun say that you can take my guests. And he says, and the guy in the back. (laughs) So that's the end of that. So they're going to board a flight to London and everybody's happy about it. Okay, so I'm going to leave that there. Thank you for listening. If you haven't yet left a review, please do so. Not for any real purpose or anything, but uh, it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice to get good reviews every now and then. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.